This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thanks for inviting me. I'm glad to be here today. And I've been asked to talk to you about the human-ape differences in language. So let's have a look at that. Where did language come from? It seems really different from, and a lot more complex, than the communication systems of other animals. This has given rise to a debate in language evolution circles called the discontinuity paradox. What we are able to convey through our communication system outstrips anything that any other species is able to communicate. We can talk or sign about the past and the future, hypothetical situations, what might be, abstract concepts and things that have never existed and never will exist in the real world. And yet, if we want to adhere to an evolutionary perspective on human behavior, which we should in Carla, language has to have come from somewhere evolutionarily. It didn't just spring like Athena from the brow of Zeus, fully formed. So, do we just have more of the same communicative resources as other animals? Or is our communicative toolkit unique? One of the first things that comes to mind when people generally think about language is what linguists call reference, the ability to refer to things in the world with spoken or gestural signs. Reference can be of three different types, according to a classification scheme proposed in the late 19th century by the brilliant American philosopher Charles Sanders Peirce. An index depends for its reference on the physical presence of the thing it refers to at some point in space and time. If the object were not present, there would be no indexical sign. We all know quite well what this means nowadays. So smoke is a reliable index of fire. A weather vane can only show which direction the wind is blowing when there's actually wind blowing. And a bullet hole can only exist if there was a bullet at some point. Perhaps the best example of an index is your index finger. It doesn't mean anything by itself or when you just wave it around. But if you point it at something, it picks up its reference from the thing or person that you point to. Apes, in fact, use indexical gestures to indicate particular conspecifics. An icon, such as a painting of a saint in the Orthodox churches, refers by sharing perceived physical similarities with the thing it represents, with emphasis on perceived physical similarities. This is frequently the problem I have with computer icons because I usually can't figure out what they're supposed to mean. A symbol is what we humans usually think of when we think of reference, because we have language. A symbol has an arbitrary relationship with the thing it refers to. It generally doesn't share physical properties with it, there are some exceptions that we can talk about. Nor does the object referred to need to have ever been physically present for the referential relationship to hold. These distinctions are not just academic. When left to their own devices, animals don't use symbols. They naturally rely on icons and indices to communicate. A number of different animals, chimps, bonobos, gorillas, orangutans, border collies, dolphins, and parrots have been trained to use various types of symbolic systems under experimental conditions in human-controlled environments. The record for the largest vocabulary goes to this border collie who learned names for 1,022 different toys, which you see here in the picture. It may seem odd to you that this is so rare, but that's only because you were lucky enough to be born into a human cultural setting. You also have a brain with a ready ability to process symbols when exposed to them. So-called wild children lack the cultural support to acquire symbolic processing on their own. And even very well-off individuals with lots of cultural support, but extreme sensory deprivation, like Helen Keller, struggle as she did until her epiphany at the water pump 
to understand that D-O-L-L actually refers to the doll and doesn't simply co-occur with it. Even entire highly civilized human societies struggle with symbolic representation. Each time writing systems have emerged in human history, in Egypt, in China, in Samaria, and in Mesoamerica, in other words, long after symbolic representation had already become firmly established in spoken human languages, humans have reverted right back to good old familiar iconic representation. It was only over thousands of years that writing systems moved slowly in the direction of arbitrary representation, because iconic representation just gets cumbersome over time. So let's face it and give the animals a break. Symbolic representation is just really hard, even for humans. Symbolic reference or arbitrariness is on the list of crucial characteristics of human language, proposed in 1960 by Charles Hockett. So that's our first human-ape difference. While we can teach some apes raised in a human cultural environment to use a few hundred symbols, they never do anything like this on their own. This brings us to another crucial feature of reference, the ability to refer to things not present in the immediate communicative situation, or to refer to things displaced in space and time. We can talk about Gandhi, who's long deceased, and his drive for Indian independence, which we didn't witness, from colonial rule of the British Empire, which no longer exists, on the other side of the globe in the previous century. As with arbitrary reference, bonobos and border collies have been trained to comprehend some aspects of displaced reference. They can retrieve objects upon request that are outside the room they're in. But you can take a linguistics 101 class virtually anywhere in the world, and sooner or later, you're going to hear about the honeybee dance. Why? because it's the only naturally occurring communication system in the animal kingdom that provides solid evidence of displaced reference, thanks to a century of research since Carl von Frisch. The honeybee dance performed in or in some species or under certain circumstances on the hive refers to a food source at some distance from the location where it is performed. Inside the hive, the straight run of the dance has to be transposed from solar to gravitational orientation, with a degree of deflection from the gravitational angle standing in for the angle of deflection of the food source from the current location of the sun. So it's a pretty impressive feat. But what you will likewise hear in that Linguistics 101 class is that there's only one thing that honeybees can communicate about, namely a food source. Aside from that, this instance of displaced reference isn't symbolic. It's purely indexical and iconic. The straight run points to the food source. That's indexical. And the slower the straight run, the farther the food source is from the hive. That's iconic. Okay, so that's reference, which is usually the only thing that most people think about with regard to language anyway. But now let's talk about some other features of human language that are well known to linguists, but that you may never have thought about before. We just talked about letters and the development of writing systems. But letters are just a cultural artifact and don't accurately reflect a spoken language's sound system, especially when its pronunciation has changed drastically over hundreds of years, like in English and French. It's in the organization of the sound system of a language that we really begin to see its beauty, elegance, and economy. By themselves, the individual sounds of a language are, of course, meaningless. But these basic meaningless sounds can be combined and recombined to create an increasing number of discrete units, all with different meaning. I could also show the same thing for sign language using the basic manual components that make up a sign. Handshape, orientation of the palm, movement, and the place on the body where the sign is produced. Notice here that the letters we use to spell these words don't always accurately or consistently reflect the four same basic sounds that are recombined in each one. 
Hockett gave this feature the unfortunate name of duality or patterning, which actually gives us tremendous combinatorial resources in our communication system. No naturally or even artificially occurring system of animal communication has this degree of combinatorial flexibility built into it. Monkeys of the Gwenon order, vervets, Campbell's monkeys, putty-nosed monkeys, and Diana monkeys in particular, have all been studied extensively for their alarm call systems. All these species have acoustically distinct calls for different predatory threats. Typically, they distinguish between terrestrial and aerial predators. On the one hand, the mappings between the acoustics of the alarm call and the predator type seem completely arbitrary. So here's an example of a leopard call. And this is the eagle alarm call. But research suggests that these alarm calls are actually indexical in nature. They don't refer to a predator so much as indicate that one is around, or at least suspected to be around. As we'll see, several of these species have been shown to combine two or three of these calls in a simple fashion, but the calls retain the exact same structure when combined. For this reason, duality of patterning was for a long time considered to be a unique feature of human language. Until 2015, when a very primitive form of duality of patterning was reported in Australian chestnut-crowned babbler birds. Babblers have two similar calls, flight calls that they produce when traveling to and from the nest, and prompt calls that they produce in the nest to stimulate baby birds to open their mouths and start begging for food. Here are some examples. So you can see it's, it's pretty simple. By splicing and dicing audio recordings of the A and B notes used in both types of calls, researchers were able to show that acoustically, the same notes were used in each call, and behaviorally, the bird's responses to the same individual notes didn't differ. In other words, the individual notes were essentially meaningless by themselves. It was only in response to the two particular combinations of individual notes in the flight and prompt calls that the birds reacted differently. One set of responses to flight calls, as shown in the white bars, and a different response to prompt calls, shown in the gray bars. So this was a big eureka in the language evolution literature. But just as with displaced reference in honeybees, this is the only instance of duality of patterning that's ever been documented in a naturally occurring animal communication system. And its use is limited to making only one functional distinction. And worse news for the scorecard, if you're keeping score, is that this feature was found in dinosaurs and not in primates, let alone apes. So, as with displaced reference in honeybees, whether this is a case of continuity or discontinuity in language evolution is going to depend on whether you're a, well, there's something in the glass kind of person, or a, well, there's hardly anything in the glass kind of person. There's some anecdotal evidence that animals trained to understand spoken English are aware that words are made up of sounds. Irene Pepperberg reported that after being trained on the sounds of refrigerator magnet letters, Alex the Gray Parrot once blurted out in frustration, want a nut, na-a-ta. And bonobos that understand spoken English can likely tell the difference between pan and can and fan, but I don't know that they've ever been tested on it formally. The final design feature I'm going to talk about is what Hockett called productivity. The ability to combine meaningful units to create more complex meanings. Crucially, the linguistic notion of compositionality has to hold here as well. 
the meanings of the individual components have to be preserved in and contribute to the meaning of the whole in a predictable way. So if I say red fox, you can reasonably expect the fox that I'm referring to to look like this and not like any of these foxes, let alone this, whatever it is. But apparently it's real and not photoshopped. Likewise, if I say the quick brown fox jumps over the lazy dog, then you can comprehend what that means without my having to spell it out for you. Based on the cues provided by word order in English, you will know that it's the fox doing the jumping and the dog being jumped over, and not vice versa. Campbell's monkeys seem to have different combinations of calls in association with different stimuli and in different contexts, but it's not clear that the component parts have stable, consistent meanings that combine in a compositional way. The monkeys produce this call only in response to leopard growls or eagle shrieks, or the leopard or eagle alarm calls of Diana monkeys with whom they share territory. These are auditory signals of danger. When a tree or a tree branch falls in the forest, another, but less definite, auditory signal of a possible predator, they combine it with this call. When they encounter another group of Campbell's monkeys, however, they combine it with this third call type. And here it's not clear how the meanings of the previous two calls have been preserved in this particular combination. For that, we need to look to the dinosaurs again. In 2016, Suzuki et al. reported basic evidence of compositionality in Japanese great tits related to North American chickadees. One set of calls, the ABC calls, elicit an alerting response in which the birds scan the horizon for threats. Another type of call is used to recruit other birds, for example, for the purpose of mobbing predators. And in response, the birds will approach the loudspeaker in playback experiments. When experimenters slice these two calls together, as one combined call, in a combination that the birds themselves produce naturally, the birds exhibited both behaviors in response. They scanned the horizon and approached the loudspeaker. But as before, this is the only unequivocal instance of productivity with clear compositionality that has ever been found in the animal kingdom. And again, the point on the scorecard goes to the dinosaurs and not to our brother primates. However, a number of language-trained apes, one of the border collies, and Dolphins have been trained to understand and respond appropriately to simple combinations of symbols. Captive apes also seem to be capable of producing some rudimentary but crucial combinations in their gestures, particularly when it comes to sexually related activities. This guy gesturing is really after sex. And if you don't believe me, here's more explicit proof. In the following stills, there seems to be both an indexical gesture or tap indicating, hey you, and then a subsequent motion, both iconic in representing the intended path or direction and indexical in that it ends at the desired goal, that seems to indicate, come here. This is merely an imperative command or request rather than a descriptive statement about some state of affairs in the world. But still, there's both a proposed subject, hey you, and an intended action, come here, which are the building blocks of the subject-predicate relationship proposed by Aristotle. And if this take is accurate, it's the only spontaneously produced subject-predicate relationship that I'm aware of in the animal kingdom. So, finally, score one for the apes. Notably, this gestural combination of sorts has been documented in more than one captive ape species, as you saw from the pictures in both bonobos and lowland gorillas. 
but it still has only one functional significance, albeit an important one for reproductive advantage. So let's take stock of where we stand. Where does this leave us with regard to our paradox? Is human language continuous or discontinuous with animal communication? I'm afraid, as you've seen from the evidence, that it's difficult to answer this question definitively, so the debate will have to continue until more evidence is available. Animals of various types in the wild, but so far not apes, have been shown to exhibit individual design features of language in their naturally occurring communication systems. As you can see here, each of them satisfies one of Hockett's criteria, and that's good enough for their natural purposes. If we add in captive apes and are willing to consider their gestures to be true combinations, we can improve their score relative to competing species. And as we've seen throughout, animals trained in human-controlled environments do pretty well in learning to comprehend the use of some of Hockett's design features in a simplified way. But they never arrive at these solutions or produce them on their own when left to their own devices. And no matter how you arrange the scorecard, Pascal will always beat out the competition because he can do all of this and a lot more in at least four languages that I'm aware of and probably more that I'm unaware of. The answer, therefore, has to lie in the eye of the beholder. I'm dating myself a bit here, so if you don't recognize this image, it's the original book version of this. But in order to solve this particular paradox, for the time being, you'll simply have to decide what kind of person you really are. Thank you. Hello, my name is Ani Patel, and I'm glad to have the chance to talk to you about music and gene culture coevolution. When we think about what makes us human in terms of our minds, we naturally think of things like language or complex social cognition. But what about music? Music occurs in every human culture. It shows great diversity, but there are also some widespread features in terms of the patterns of rhythms and melodies that people make, the social functions that music plays, and the emotions that it evokes. Music is also very ancient. The oldest instruments we know of are actually around 40,000 years old. And of course, music is probably much older than that because singing doesn't fossilize. So is music part of human nature? Or to put it in modern terms, have we evolved neural specializations for music processing? Even though there's been an explosion of research in my field of music neuroscience in the past 20 years, we are nowhere near consensus on the answer to this question. That's unlike some other domains of human cognition. For example, there's broad consensus that we have evolved neural adaptations for speech and language, and that we have not evolved adaptations or specializations for reading and writing. Reading and writing are hugely important in human culture, but they're purely cultural inventions that build on brain circuits that evolve for other reasons. So what about music? Um, have we evolved neural specializations for music processing? Well, I just told you there's no consensus, so why are we even talking about this question? Well, two reasons. One, there are new lines of evidence that are rapidly emerging that are relevant to the question. Those new lines come from uh, neuroscience, cross-species studies of music processing in other animals, and studies of genetics along with other disciplines. Also, this question is relevant to some key issues in the study of human origins. In particular, the relationship between biology and culture in human evolution, and the distinctive features of human cognition. So a roadmap for this talk is that I'm gonna first talk about debates over the evolution of musicality, and then I'm gonna to turn to neuroscientific and cross-species work on musicality, focusing on musical rhythm. And then I'll talk about some recent genetic research before concluding. All right, before I launch in, I need to make a key conceptual distinction between music and musicality. Any given musical tradition is a product of culture and history. 
But all musical traditions rest on some basic cognitive and neural mechanisms that support basic musical behavior. Um, and these are thought to be widespread and they don't require formal musical training to develop. So I'm talking about basic musical behavior, not comp composing a symphony or playing an instrument at a high level, but basic things that support singing and dancing, the kinds of things that people can do without formal musical training. Um, so let's take an example to make this concrete. So one example of musicality is our ability to recognize transposed melodies, melodies when they're played in a higher or lower register. For example, on a piccolo or a tuba, you recognize the, the happy birthday tune on a piccolo or tuba, even though one is much higher and one is much lower, and you may have never heard them that high or that low before. We do this effortlessly and infants can do it, it doesn't seem remarkable to us at all. But surprisingly, it's not just how the brain works. It turns out that other animals that have complex auditory systems like songbirds can't do this. They can learn to tell the difference between two melodies, but if you transpose those melodies, they no longer recognize them. They have to relearn them as if they're new. So it's not just how the brain works, it's how the human brain works. And neuroimaging shows that this ability relies on some rather complex circuitry that connects the auditory cortex to different distant regions of the brain, including the parietal cortex. So this is an example of musicality, something that's widespread, that develops spontaneously and that we take for granted, but actually it turns out to be supported by some rather um, complex neural circuitry. And of course, musicality has many components. This is just one, but there are many having to do with pitch and rhythm and emotion and memory and so forth, and they fit together in the mind, kind of like a jigsaw puzzle of cognition. So let's turn to debates over the evolution of musicality. These debates are actually about 150 years old. Go back to Darwin, who argued that we are musical by nature because music served a courtship function in our ancestors based on his theory of sexual selection. He thought that our ancestors sang to attract mates even before we had symbolic language, kind of in, similar to what, how birdsong works today. In sharp contrast, William James in Principles of Psychology thought that music was a fortuitous byproduct of how our brain worked. It was a pure cultural invention with no adaptive value in human evolution. These debates are still with us today. In fact, there's a couple of papers in press in behavioral and brain sciences that make adaptationist arguments for music. Savage et al. argue about the role of collective music making and promoting social bonding in our ancestors as being an adaptive function. And Mayer et al. talk about collective music making as signaling group strength or size. Um, these are just two of many adaptationist arguments, but they're recent and I thought I'd point them out. And these arguments um, often focus on collective music making having a kind of synchrony where people move together and, and synchronize their voices in ways that don't occur in ordinary language and which promotes in-group prosociality as shown by experimental research. Well, in sharp contrast to that, there are modern thinkers, very prominent thinkers, including thinkers from anthropology and psychology like Daniel Sperber and Steven Pinker, who've argued that music is a purely cultural invention and have made very specific arguments about how music happens to activate brain circuits that evolve for other reasons like language or motor control, emotional calls, and so on. So we still have this dichotomy between adaptation and cultural invention in terms of the theory and debate over musicality. But what's happening recently is the idea that maybe there's a way beyond this debate. Perhaps music originated as an invention, which then influenced biological evolution. And actually, Savage at uh, all explore this in their paper. And this is related to the broader idea of gene culture coevolution. This is the idea that there's a feedback loop in human evolution between cultural innovation and biological evolution. Now, this idea has been around for a while. It's been written about by many prominent evolutionary biologists and by people spanning fields from population genetics to uh, philosophy to um, evolutionary biology. 
and, uh, and so on. I've listed a few references here on the slide, um, but let me just quote from a couple of these references to give you a flavor for this idea. This quote is that culture normally evolves more rapidly than genes, creating novel environments that expose genes to new selective pressures. This is from Richardson, Boyd, and Henrik. Um, the smallest, most trivial new habit adopted by a hominid species could, if advantageous, have led to selection of genomic variations that sharpen that trait, be it cultural exchange, creativity, technological virtuosity, or heightened empathy. And this is from Fisher and Ridley. So you get the idea that cultural innovations can then change the selective landscape, which will favor or disfavor certain genetic variants. And this idea is actually already pretty well accepted for some human traits. For example, the evolution of lactose tolerance, whereby some populations that began to keep animals and drink their milk, there was selection for genetic variants that favored the ability to digest lactose as an adult. And we see that good evidence for that in, in genetic diversity today and how it's correlated to lactose tolerance. Going back to the species level, uh, gene culture coevolution. Richard Wrangham and others have persuasively argued that the control of fire was an important step in human evolution that had coevolutionary consequences for things like digestion. Cooking made food easier to digest, to chew and digest, and so, for example, our jaws got smaller and our digestive tract got shorter over evolutionary time. So in recent years, there have been a number of people writing about the possibility of gene culture coevolution when it comes to musicality. And I've listed a few references here on the slide. Um, and I'm one of a, a number of people that's explored this idea, that's beginning to explore this idea. But how can we find out if music actually triggered gene culture coevolution? Well, here's where we need to synthesize evidence from different disciplines, including neuroscience, cross-species research, and genetics. So what I want to do now is talk about neuroscientific and cross-species work on musical rhythm. And I'm going to focus on a particular aspect of musical rhythm. Musical rhythm, of course, is hugely complicated and has many facets. But I'm going to focus on one aspect called uh, beat perception and synchronization. This is our ability to sense a beat in complex rhythms and to move in synchrony with that beat. And this is something we see all over the world. I'll play a short clip of uh, music from Stevie Wonder, which will help us uh, all get on the same page with what beat perception and synchronization is. And just try and feel free to tap the beat of this uh, music as you listen to it. So there you have a complex uh, melodic and rhythmic pattern that is invoking an underlying metronomic sense of a beat that you synchronize to, as I did when I uh, snapped. So two key cognitive features of what I'll call BPS um, are prediction, uh, that is we always are implicitly predicting the timing of the next beat, and that's shown by the fact that when we tap or snap we're often a little bit ahead of the beat, not behind it and reacting to it. And tempo flexibility, we can do that easily when the music is slower or faster over a pretty broad range. BPS emerges without formal training. Um, it's very widespread in human culture in terms of music. And it's a key to collective musical behavior of the type that I talked about before in those theories about how that might have promoted social bonding in early humans. Now, there is a theory that the sense of musical beat is just kind of tapping into ancient and widespread rhythms in animal biology. You know, animals have heartbeats, they have gait, they have brain rhythms, they have rhythms all over the body. And this idea is that we don't need any evolved neural specializations to support beat perception. It's just kind of a byproduct of how biology works. In 2006, and that idea actually goes back to Darwin. In 2006, I proposed a very different view and that there, there was a, a specific neural origin uh, or pre-adaptation for BPS was based on vocal learning. Let me try and explain that. I was struck by how neural research was showing that beat perception engaged a rather complex circuit, uh, as illustrated in this image from my colleague, Jessica Gran, involving 
number of brain regions in the premotor cortex, in auditory regions, and deep in the brain in the basal ganglia and their connections. So it's not a simple brainstem ability. It's a, it seems to recruit a complex brain circuit. And this circuit, to me, had some striking resemblances to a circuit that humans have, but that other primates don't have for complex vocal learning, our ability to imitate complex sounds. And this is an image from the work of Eric Jarvis showing a human brain and a primate brain in a schematic form, and the kinds of connections that he believes support vocal learning in humans that are not present in non-human primates. And there are some resemblances in the brain areas and their connections that we see in beat processing. So the hypothesis was, was that vocal learning uh, laid the ground for beat perception and synchronization in evolution. And the, the thing about this hypothesis uh, that was interesting is that vocal learning is a rare trait. You only see it in a few groups of mammals, us among, uniquely among primates, but also in dolphins, elephants, uh, some bats, and some seals, and in three groups of birds, uh, the parrots, the hummingbirds, and the songbirds, so not chickens or many birds that you're familiar with. And the, the prediction of this hypothesis was that most animals are actually not capable of beat perception and synchronization, um, unlike the view that it just stems from widespread rhythms in animal biology. So subsequently, there was some research that was actually consistent with that hypothesis. Pioneering work from the lab of Hugo Mershon in Mexico showed that monkeys could learn to tap along with a metronome, a simple form of beat perception and synchronization, but they did it very differently from humans. They always tapped a few hundred milliseconds after each click as if they were mostly reacting rather than predicting. What about great apes? Hattori and colleagues showed that chimpanzees could actually synchronize with a metronome at one tempo predictably, but they didn't show any evidence for tempo flexibility, which is another key feature of BPS. Then in 2009, we published the first study, experimental study showing predictive and tempo flexible BPS in a non-human animal, a parrot named Snowball. And then another group in the same year published a survey study where they looked across YouTube for any animal that seemed to be doing synchronization with a musical beat and they were only able to find vocal learners, mostly parrots, so no dogs, cats, and so on. And these parrots all showed these sort of short bouts of BPS, not as good as a human that can go for long periods of time, but these episodic, but still significant bouts of BPS. Later, the story got more interesting as people were able to train vocal non-learning animals like a sea lion to actually do BPS. And then I was involved in a, some work that did this also with monkeys and other groups have done it now too. And that's been very interesting, but the only animals that seem to do BPS spontaneously without kind of special training are vocal learners. And I wanna show you just briefly a uh, clip from our study of Snowball uh, to illustrate BPS in a non-human animal. This is Snowball moving to uh, the beat of a song that has been sped up from its original tempo to test and see if he can stay on the beat. And as you'll see, it's a little fast for him, but he figures out a solution at the end. So that's a clip of Snowball, and he's never been uh, trained to do this. He's not given any food rewards for this behavior. This emerged through social interaction with humans. Um, so this leads me to believe that vocal learning was likely a pre-adaptation for BPS, that uh, in our ancestors, our vocal learning ancestors, our 
that ability could have led to fortuitously to short bouts of beat perception and synchronization when we interacted with each other. And that's kind of interesting. But then you might wonder, well, how did our primate heritage, we did evolve from primates and apes, so how did our primate heritage contribute to musicality? And we know parrots don't sing or dance in coordinated social groups, and humans do. So I think our primate heritage is actually very important for the evolution of musicality, because we do see social chorusing in chimpanzees and bonobos. For example, pant hooting in chimpanzees or high hooting in bonobos. And both males and females do this. It's not just one sex or the other. And when they do it in social groups, there's evidence for some convergence in the timing and acoustic structure of calls. And it also seems to be related to social bonds. This connects back to the idea that music may have had some sort of social function when people brought their voices and their movements together synchronously in time in human evolution. And so let me show you a, a brief clip of pant hooting from my colleague um, Zarin Machanda at Tufts to give you a sense of this. This is chimpanzee pant hooting um, taken at her field site. So it doesn't sound uh, exactly like human singing, and it doesn't look like dancing, but there is some uh, simultaneous vocalization, maybe some convergence in the sounds and their structure. And so I think that it's possible that vocal learning plus this kind of social chorusing in our hominid ancestors could have led to group singing and dancing as cultural innovations. And if this influenced survival, perhaps because of its effect on social bonding, this could have led to gene culture coevolution. Now, that's an interesting speculation, and it suggests that after this invention, there could have been selection for neural specializations for sustained and stable beat perception and synchronization versus the kind of short bouts we see in parrots. But all of this, of course, depends on whether there are genetic variants that contribute to beat perception and synchronization abilities. And is that really the case? So let me turn now to talking about some genetic work. There has been some recent genetic work, actually, on beat perception and synchronization. Prior twin studies suggested that there were genetic influences on rhythmic aptitude. And then excitingly, and very recently, there's been a large-scale genome-wide association study of beat perception and synchronization. And this involved research from 600,000 in genotyped people who answered the question, can you clap in time with a musical beat? And the data was provided by the, the gene company 23andMe. This was followed up with an online validation study showing that people's answer to this question really did uh, correlate well with their actual BPS abilities. In this study, they found 67 significant loci in the genome associated with BPS, with a SNP-based heritability of about 15%. And they found that these genetic associations with rhythm were enriched in brain areas involved in BPS, which is a good reality check. This actually has something to do with the behavior of beat perception and synchronization. This plot shows the Manhattan plot from their study, and I know the, the symbols are hard to see, but just to give you an idea of the significant uh, loci that showed up across multiple genome genes in the chromosome. So it's a polygenic trait, complex trait. So from a cognitive perspective, one of the interesting things about this study was that genetic correlations between BPS and other complex traits were modest. And from an evolutionary perspective, an exciting thing was that two of the loci they found are in human accelerated regions. These are regions of the genome that have changed extensively since our divergence from our common last ancestor with chimpanzees. So I think these findings are actually consistent with gene culture coevolution for BPS, which is a core feature of human musicality. So in conclusion, is music part of our evolved human nature? Well, new lines of evidence are rapidly emerging that's actually helping us address this question. And I think that 
we can actually answer this question in the coming few decades and settle a 150-year-old debate about human nature. Of course, answering this question will require synthesizing work from neuroscience, cross-species studies, and other fields. And it will also inquire, uh, require studying multiple components of musicality. So not just rhythm and not just BPS, but things like the ability to match pitch with other voices, uh, the ability to remember music. Um, there are many components to musicality and BPS is just one. The emotional responses we have to music are another big area of research. And of course, it will be really important to study how music varies across culture and time. This means the sciences will need to team up with the humanities, in particular, ethnomusicology and musicology. And if it turns out that music has been subject to gene culture coevolution, it may be a powerful system for studying cognitive gene culture coevolution. So not just how gene culture coevolution changed our gut or our jaws or our digestion uh, of various nutri nutrients, but actually how it changed our minds. And of course, even if music is a purely cultural invention, cross-species research on musicality can reveal new insights into animal cognition and into what's distinct about the human mind. And with that, I'd like to thank our spot to thank my sponsors uh, who have supported this work and also thank you for your attention. Hello, my name is Ian Davidson. I'm talking about art, story and mind. I begin by acknowledging the first people of the unceded Aboriginal country around me. The Yuggera people were the first inhabitants of Brisbane and their descendants continue to live here. Likewise, if I were in San Diego, I would acknowledge the Kumeyaay people, the native tribes who were once the sole owners of the unceded land where this meeting is at home. Archaeologists should always be mindful of and respectful to and about the indigenous people whose land we occupy, whose past we study, and to whose future we might make a small contribution. Here is the two-tweet take-home message. The role of art in anthropogeny cannot be understood by using concepts from modern students of art, since art theory and art philosophy have moved a long way from anything that led to them. Our goal is to understand how the modern concepts arose in hominin and human evolution. The fundamental point is that art is about a material intervention in relationships between people and the stories that define those relationships. There is, a, there is fascinatingly little evidence of the use of material in relationships among apes, but we cannot engage in storytelling with apes. Really importantly, once people started to represent scenes, the art could stand alone without the artist, and the observers could infer their own understanding the art seems to have an implicational meaning of its own. There are five steps of the story. First, we need a definition of art, which will encompass the early examples and yet lead us to a definition we can recognise. I will briefly make some points about claims for art among modern apes, and indeed other modern animals, in the wild and in captivity. I will run through some examples of early art from the archaeological record, and in the concluding two sections, I will summarise the implications of the first part of the talk for understanding what art is and how it came to be. I will end with some simple points about why scenes make a difference to the way humans see the world. What is art? Let's start with how art works. An artist makes a mark, 
They communicate with someone else about it, and that other person is able to see the mark and say something about it. It works for any form of art. Art is about people making marks meaningful and others understanding that is the case. From this, my definition is, art is the making and marking of surfaces where the implicational meaning of the images does not encode the full propositional meaning of the artist. An Oxford Dictionary definition instead emphasises qualities such as skill, imagination, beauty or emotional power, although it is circular to identify that creativity through skill and imagination, as we do. Our task is to investigate how these definitions came to be related. John Robb distinguished modern art, Art 1, with a capital A, from archaeological art, which I call Art 2. There is a third category, archaeological evidence that might or might not be on the way to becoming art, which I call Art 3. How do things that are called art, art one, in the modern world, compare with art three? Most works of art have a degree of uniqueness, even when a single artist, Picasso, paints a series of self-portraits, such as the ones on the right. In art three, we need repetition for us to recognise that the production is intentional, the things on the left. In art one, the work generally stands alone and is judged on those merits, for some, but not all, the skill in the production of Art 1 is shown through the resemblance between subject and object, while in Art 3, any meaning of the image is originally conveyed by speech acts by the producers. But an art object, by persisting as a material object, can stand alone such that observers can appreciate it separately from the producers. Rock and cave art gain some of their force from being persistent in the environment. But in Art 1, much of the force derives from its transferability. It can be moved from one context to another, and it can be bought and sold. Art 3 required social interaction between producers and observers, while Art 1 is open to all who can pay. What precursors might there have been in, for the distinctiveness of human art among the last common ancestor of humans and African apes. Given evolution by selection from a range of variation, it is not necessarily best to consider only chimpanzees as an analogy for the LCA, although in practice that is what we do. In addition, many animals, such as dolphins in this example, have produced marks on paper when interacting with humans. Those experiments depend absolutely on the judgment of the humans interacting with the animals. Nearly 20 years ago, I worked with others to consider what was involved with the evolution of human cognition from an LCA with abilities similar to a chimpanzee. We showed that it was possible to analyse chimpanzee behaviour to show that their actions have semantic meanings, to use Fillimore's term, with the same case roles as among people. And the examples are all there in that table if you can stop the video to look at them. In captivity, Ever since Desmond Morris's experiments with Congo in London Zoo, such as this picture, mark-making by chimpanzees and other animals has been said to be a sign of the similarity between the animals and the humans. More recent work shows that when captive chimpanzees are given the opportunity to make marks, they do not just do so at random. Ingenious humans 
can tease out some regularities, but it is not so clear that the chimpanzees assign any meaning to them. The captive chimpanzee Moja produced this scribble with the gardeners, who said it was an image of a bird. I think it looks like a TV performer. The ape was probably fortunate not to know that. Noble and I discussed the issues involved in accepting such a claim about the meaning of a similar set of lines. The understanding could only come from the humans in that interaction. Curiously, the different set of lines was also said to be a bird. The same restriction on interpretation applies to the archaeological record, of course. We cannot ask dead people about their intention. In the wild, there are a few recorded instances from chimpanzees in their natural habitat that might be related to art. The best documented is the practice of creating stone accumulations in particular trees. That occurs at four temporary research sites in West Africa, but was not reported from all other sites of long or short-term study in Africa. Related behaviour has been observed in zoos with one chimpanzee hoarding rocks to throw at zoo visitors. And just draw your attention to the fact that more authors wrote that paper than have actually uh, than the stones that have been thrown in the in the study. In addition, there is a single observation of the use of a knotted skin in the manner of a necklace. It may be that the single instance of a knot is just as significant significant as the possible use as an ornament. Interpreting the archaeological record needs similar cautions. The earliest specimen generally cited is the engagingly attractive unmodified pebble from South African site of Makapanskat, which was collected by Australopithecines more than two and a half million years ago. All modern people are familiar with the idea of seeing a thing as something other than the thing itself, seeing objects as representation of subjects. A carved stone as a human thinker seated on a rock, or marks on canvas as a picture of sunflowers. Our human ability to see one thing as another means that we can see the markings on the pebble as representations of a hominin or human face. If you are looking for it, you can see a face on the tree. But does that mean that the ability existed in a creature that was not even in the same genus as us? It is an achievement of humans, not an affordance of the object. All of the other evidence for early art and its predecessors is very late in the process of evolution of humans from those common ancestors, particularly in the most recent split from chimpanzees. That evidence occurred within the last couple of climatic cycles of the more than 20 cycles since the emergence of the genus Homo. I suggest all of the evidence that is reliable is from the last of those cycles of generally low sea level within the last 100,000 years. And they occur around the world in instances that are isolated, with the exception of the cluster of South African specimens and perhaps some Neanderthal examples in Europe, and at times when low sea level made substantial differences to the landforms, especially in Sunda and Sahel. European Neanderthals appear to have engaged in substantial behaviour that looks like symbol use, including the creation of rock structures deep inside a cave, use of feathers and shells, use of ornaments, rock marking by engraving, and mark making with ochre inside caves. Does this indicate a capacity for art? One view would be that despite several hundred thousand years of separate evolution, 
Neanderthals and humans converged on similar solutions to the problems of living. Explaining how that was possible without invoking a teleological progress is more difficult. We can also put the early marked objects onto a phylogeny. This is a phylogenetic tree derived from the statistics of evidence from ancient, ancient genomics. While the Makapanskat pebble is right at the base, or in this case the top, of, of the uh, tree of the, of the divergence of hominid, hominid variation, the trinil incised shell from Indonesia was made at the likely time of divergence between the lineages that led to Neanderthals in Europe and those that led to all other people. The dates for genetic divergence of modern groups outside Africa are all of the same order as the dates for the earliest cave art or the use of a boat to get to Australia or the emergence of ritual burial in Australia. On this telling, both the variety of Neanderthal marking and the consistency of African mark making seem to be separated from the achievements of the earliest people to leave Africa during the last time of generally low sea level. So what does this tell us about art in any of its manifestations? Most importantly, mark making by itself is not all that art is. These kids are not just looking at their phones. They are finding the answers to their school assignments about what they can find of the meaning of Rembrandt's The Night Watch. They don't need to look at the picture, they can listen to the stories. Duchamp's fountain, of course, was surrounded not only by controversy, but by comment on the purpose of presenting a urinal as a work of art. The storytelling and the history of the piece became as important as the work itself. And as for Rothko, what can one say? I can say nothing, but we know that Rothko could. In essence, even in the modern world, the art is embedded within a culture that talks about and tells stories about the works. And the acceptance of the fountain and Rothko's paintings as art results from an expectation within our culture that the observer should be able to appreciate the work because it is presented as art and that it may mean more than that which can be seen on the surface. In fact, it is possible to represent a single category of object, in this case birds, or none, in a thousand different ways. Some are easily interpreted from their iconic resemblance to their subject. Others require a story for their identification. All carry a story through the embedding of the object and the subject in the lives, cultures and histories of the observers. And most of them do. Crucially, as exemplified by the Wonka Madla woman Mrs Hansen, illustrating in the sand her song about traditional myths for her daughter and me, the song makes the meaning of the drawings plain. As Nancy Munn documented, a simple sign such as a circle can have multiple meanings. The meaning is in the performance, the image, the meaning and the story are irrevocably intertwined. All this means that what emerged during and through Art 3 was that the persistence of marks in the environment, made in repeated patterns by people, allowed them to carry stories, and I suggest made our minds. In an earlier analysis, I took the semantic meaning argument that compared humans and chimpanzees and showed the same case roles for early stone toolmaking. Importantly, six of those roles leave enduring material products. That sort of observation 
led McGrew and me to posit that the material remains created a new environment of opportunity and contributed to niche construction for early hominins. We see this as an anomaly, not analogy, between chimpanzee behaviour and early hominin behaviour. Something similar happened with the making of marks. There were physical traces of the agency, counteragency, object and association between the action and the location, sufficient to identify the statistical regularities between mark and thing. But there are a couple of anomalies. First, the instrumental role depends on the perception of resemblance between the mark and an object. The engagement of the artist with an audience entails the communication of some information from the mark maker to that audience. Most importantly, this information is not about the mark, but about the resemblance between the object and the mark. And finally, the association with place depends upon the memory of the resemblance and probably the story. Phil Barnard developed a nine subsystem model of human cognition, which emphasises the interaction of subsystems within the mind. All but one of those individual subsystems interact with sensory perceptions from outside and produce sensory outputs to the outside. The internal workings can be simplified to become the working memory model of the mind. Importantly, the external relations can be with the minds of other people, encapsulating the social mind position, or with materials external to the body, encapsulating the external storage model. But the internal subsystem, labelled propositional here, does not interact directly with external inputs, and it is crucial to the reflectivity that, so far as we know, is unique to humans. It is at the heart of the anomalies I have just pointed to. Barnard and others argued that the mind of apes could be modelled with only six of the nine subsystems, and the logic of the construction of those simpler models of cognition also produced an argument about how the nine subsystem model evolved from a supposed six subsystem last common ancestor. I have previously offered a narrative that traces the steps that must have been necessary to move from hominins leaving signs of their presence to making marks, to using marks to convey meaning through pattern and repetition, to the use of repetition in ritual, with a side transition from making repeated marks to creating the circumstances for recognising iconicity in what were otherwise primarily indexical marks. The final two stages to get from iconicity to art in a modern sense were the production of iconic marks in a way that observers could identify through nuances in the representation of the agency of the creatures iconically represented in scenes. And in doing so, the necessity of the nexus between the producer and the observer was broken. And yet, this untethering of the image from the social context of its production left the possibility that the scene could often be interpreted in various different ways. It seems to me that that is what post-Renaissance art developed, the delicious uncertainty of interpretation. Thank you. That's all I have to say. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.